Welcome to Chalkboard Heresy, Larry Malley. Malley or Malley? So I get that. I get asked that every day. I, I go by Malley. And then people Malley. say, well, which is correct? And I say, well, whatever name you prefer is what's correct. I think that's the. That's the... that's makes people very uncomfortable because then they don't know whether they're right or wrong and they yeah, can be accused of something, microaggression or something. I recognize um, that. Yeah, no, that's um, that's great. And uh, we've talked uh, for our, for our audience listening to this. Uh, Larry and I know each other. We met last year. Um, how do we meet exactly? Did so you reach out to me or we met? I, I believe through FAIR. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think you uh, you reached out to me through FAIR. I was already associated with them. I'm not anymore. Um, we won't get into that. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, uh, but uh, we had a great conversation. I really liked talking to you. I really liked your very nuanced take on things, your very balanced take on things, and what you'd experienced as a teacher, uh, not just at you know, some of New York City's private schools, but also, you know, in a charter school, um, teaching in, kind of call it the inner city um, mm -hmm. with different populations. And, you know, what you're, what you drew from that experience, uh, as well as what you, you know, what, what came later for you. So, you know, I'd love to touch on all that. Um, sure. If, if, you know, whatever you, um, however you want to, want to go there. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I'm most interested in, to kick things off. So how did you, um, you know, what, what actually troubled you or got you thinking um, outside the norm of what is seen today as anti-racism or yeah, social sure. justice and quotes um, and, you know, anything that you, and you start anywhere, I guess. Yeah, you got it. So I, 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 ideally, you know, when talking about these things, try to avoid, you know, talking about myself because I want to talk about the ideas and the issues, of course, but I, it probably helps a little bit to give, give a little bit of my background so that you can understand and any listeners can understand um, where I come from in this conversation or this, this greater conversation around these ideas. Right. Um, and so I, I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't in education originally. I, I, when I finished college, I went to the university of Pittsburgh undergrad uh, I was I, I worked as a as a DJ and a music producer and produced um, a number of albums, hip hop albums in the uh, Philadelphia area. I started a record label called Good Hands Records and produced some artists like Chief Kamachi and Reef the Lost Cause, who are still making music today um, and and very much enjoyed that. Uh, but as you probably and most people know, you know, being an artist, being a the, being a musician, an artist is is not often a, a very lucrative uh profession so i went back to school when i was in my uh around 30 and got a master's in education and ended up working uh in inner city uh charter schools in philadelphia uh and when my wife and i moved to arizona uh, i'm also jewish so my background is that i'm i'm middle eastern uh and i'm and i'm jewish my father's actually irish but my mother's middle eastern and so i worked in um in the inner city and then we moved to arizona and i ended up working in a jewish day school and i always put this sort of empowerment of children first uh, in what i did uh, what i noticed very early on in the inner city in philadelphia was that 
they were doing something and and many people may not may or may not remember this idea that, that sort of emerged strongly in new york city in the giuliani era uh, was that broken broken windows theory of policing correct which now mm -hmm. people would of course look back and say you know they would it's very much called like a racist policy right where where you have to try to uh correct everything that you see down to broken windows right so in a school in an inner city school they're going to say um the children need to be in uniform their shirts need to be tucked in their shoelaces need to be tied their belt has to be the right color they wore a demerit card around their neck where you know you wrote they were if they did an infraction if they spoke in class or weren't seated, seated properly they could get uh an infraction written around their neck so they're carrying you know it's very scarlet letter right you're carrying this this card around your neck that says everything you did wrong as soon as you fill up that card you're in detention we'd have three or four hundred students in detention and and my perspective was you know that's restrictive it's not childhood it's not what schooling should be mm -hmm. right so immediately i got a lot of pushback in inner city schools for sort of diverging from the norm and and what i learned very quickly a couple of things is one i think everyone knows at this point is that charter schools are working towards getting funding and thus funding comes from uh passing state standardized tests right so you uh, teachers are working towards uh, teaching children to a test uh not teaching them sort of intrinsic motivation in school um you're giving punishments for not doing homework um and then in the end you know the school says oh look we made strides in the test but if you look deeper which i did and some other teachers did um we noticed that of our students not i think it was 96 percent. don't quote me but it's around there we're dropping out of college in the first semester right so they're going to college they're taking out student loans they're on the hook for these student loans and the goal, and and I don't know if you listened to any uh, Frederick DeBoer, Freddie DeBoer was on uh, Coleman Hughes recently, and he wrote The Cold of Smart. And he sort of talks about the, the value of a college education going down as you sort of take the idea that we need to push all kids to college and not think about where they may be good and where they may be successful at life, right? So, so I was veering from that uh, and getting pushback from admin. And uh, I, I stood strong and said, no, this is the way to go. And eventually was hired to be on the culture team in this school um, where I helped them redefine culture. So working on how do we do restorative practices for kids? I was, and this was 12 years ago, right? Leading what they then called uh, racial identity awareness for, for um, teachers, right? And the, the school identified me, said, oh, you know, Larry, um, because of your background, like I am, and I think this is really funny. You might laugh at this term. I've never known what to call myself. I never had like you know, a tribe, so to speak. Um, I didn't know where I fit in. I was raised around my mother's Middle Eastern family. I didn't really know my Irish family. I didn't know anyone like myself growing up. My household was multiracial. So um, we were we were a mixed family of, of my 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 mother and myself and my best friend slash adopted brother who who's black and his mother. And so um, I didn't have a, 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 a real um, racial identity, right, for, from my own perspective. And so they said, oh, you know, get this unique perspective and everyone likes your perspective. So we want you to lead teachers. And, and at that point, these things that we're talking about now with the, you know, the DEI training around, uh, you know, white fragility or racial identity, they, they were kind of unheard of. There was like the Peggy McIntosh. I don't know if you like the Peggy Mac. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like un unpacking the invisible backpack sort of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um you know, we had a lot of teachers who we wanted them to feel like they could connect with the students on a, on a deeper cultural level because they were, you know, oftentimes 
you'll hear me probably a lot of times say things like European descended teachers. I, I, I understand that we mostly think in these very black and white terms, but because, right, like this is my pushback on, you know, the binary system, right? The, mm. right, the of black and white, it's, it's too restricting in, from my viewpoint, right? So I said, you know, these teachers who more importantly than the color of their skin was that they had come from outside of that community. They didn't know that community in, in what was West Philadelphia well at all. And, and we sort of wanted to, to get them understanding the community and, and help the children understand them. So at the time, I wasn't hearing of that going on anywhere else. Then I went to Arizona. I worked briefly in a, in a Jewish day school out there. And in, in that school, the only the, the type of diversity you would have is, you know, you've got Orthodox Jewish people, conservative reform. You did have Jewish people from different backgrounds, you know, especially in Arizona. You have people who who come from Mexico. There are a lot of people don't know that. Right. There's there's Mexican Jewish people. And and so you had some diversity, but sort of a different kind because everyone was Jewish. Um, mm. And then. I came to New York and immediately, you know, this is Trump is president. Um, this the, the social justice uh, discussions in school are really uh, picking up. Um, and they in my first year, um, this is funny, Paul, like I have to actually really think carefully right about yeah. how I share how the conversations opened up, because some of the things were in the news and and then I'm being too specific about you know, the school itself. Mm -hmm. um, so um, they, they start to pick up and, and they say, okay, we're going to have these affinity groups, right? As you've experienced, right? And we're going to have um, anti-racist uh, education groups, uh, both that take place on professional development days and then after school. And, you know, my, my initial response to this was like, well, you know, a, I've done this work in the past. B, I feel like I'm coming from a unique perspective. And C, more, most importantly, like as a, as a history teacher and uh, someone who cares about change and cares about empowering children, like I, I really want to see like, what are we doing? What's what's going on in these meetings? And so I went to the, the head of DEI at the time uh, and said, you know, well, I feel a little bit out of place. I don't know where I belong in these meetings. And she was like, well, you know, I think you should go to the white meetings. And I said, um, Okay, um, you know, uh, I think I may present a different perspective. No, you know, she said, I, I think they need to hear your perspective. And the first, and I wrote all of this down right immediately afterwards, the first white anti-racist educator, right, it's called WHERE, uh, meeting that I attended, it, it felt like the most racist thing I had ever, ever seen in my life. And it, it, I mean, it made my, 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 the hair on my arm stand up. I felt physically, it's weird to say it, right? I felt physically nauseous because it, it felt, and, and, and at the time I, I probably didn't even know terms like virtue signaling, right? It felt such a forced effort for, you know, white, Europe, you know, European teachers to say, and who, who all shared their stories and they all came from, um, privilege and means. And most of them attended private schools. I did not. I attended public school, you know, where most of us were lower economic or coming from a lower economic or, or single family parent households. And so, you know, they're, they're sort of signaling all this, this um, intense empathy or sympathy. Actually, let me change that word. It was sympathy, right? It felt like pity mm. for, for, for African-Americans, for black Americans. And 
that feels very weird, right? Because I, I don't feel generally people in general, right, of any of any ethnic background really want the pity of those other people. It's that idea, you know, that is sort of blown up over time of like the white tears. And and I would see people cry and how bad they felt for the fact that they had grown up in the suburbs with well-to-do parents. And I thought, I, I, I started feeling very strange. And they did that very common, um, you know, social justice, DEI, anti-racist training of like, let's put people on different sides. And, and then we're going to talk about what we already have, have decided is going to be the outcome. And the first thing they did was, if you talked about race and racism in your home growing up, you stand on this side of the room. And if you, if you never did, you stand on this side of the room. And I was the mm. only one on the, yes, we talked about it regularly side, right? Because mm. as I mentioned in my home, and that was just a part of our conversation, right? And talking about civil rights. And, you know, I grew up in a home in the 90s. I, I could, it was actually fascinating to me to hear teachers who were from, many of them in and around the New York City area talking about uh, civil rights and racism as if they had never been educated. And that was their big, that was part, a big part of their message, right? Like, we never knew. We never knew about racism. We never knew about the experiences. of. I'm thinking... Did you public, believe them? I didn't. No. Right? No, I'm thinking... I mean, aside from the fact of, of, of the, the cultural, right? We grew up in an era, if you grew up in the 90s, right? If you grew up in the 80s, and, and you go back, back further, you could go back to the 70s. But for my era, right, hip hop was growing huge. Public Enemy used to fill stadiums. If you grew up a little bit after that, it was Wu-Tang. Like, maybe you ignored all of that, but right? But we had movies. Malcolm X was a blockbuster success. Glory mm -hmm. was a blockbuster buster success. Roots was big on too, like... How did you, and then you certainly talked about Dr. Martin Luther King in schools, like how did you avoid, you somehow avoided that? That seemed absurd to me. Yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. Like I'm, <laughs> you know, you're describing college as, as an undergrad. Um, you know, we had, we had house parties, we had, you know, fear of a black planet dropped and everybody was, was I mean, it was, it's a little bit, sounds a little bit ridiculous and appropriative now, right? Because right. it was- but, you know, but the, the hip hop culture back then, it was uh, I'm sure there's things I missed as a white guy. Right. But sure. but it was a, it was a more it was sort of like, yeah, join the party kind of vibe and just don't say the N word like a jerk right. and, you know, respect people. And, you know, you can be a part of this sort of multi ethnic, multiracial tribe. And we're all about the music. Right. Um, and, you know. I th what do you where do you think that hysterical blindness comes from where people are denying and we're not the only ones right like you said right. maybe not to that degree but there, you know people were alive in the 90s like you said they saw these movies these things came out where does the the need to sort of suppress your own lived experience and your own in order to sort of hold up your ignorance as a kind of you're proud of your ignorance somehow that you don't even have yeah, I, I thought about that a lot. And, you know, no, I don't, in my experience, John McWhorter has sort of discussed this the best of anyone where he, you know, he, and, and, and by the way, as you know, right, long before this got big, he was discussing this as like a, a growing religion, right? It's sort of this, it's like this idea of like, you know, I will be accepted if I sort of prostrate myself toward, you know, and say mm -hmm. how, how horribly guilty I am for the past. Um, so, you know, watching it, I, I was just sort of shocked at first, 
but you know, didn't express shock as much as I did just sort of stand on, okay, I'm on this side of the room and, and I'm being looked at at, at, by the other side of the room, Mm -hmm. right. As if I don't belong. (laughs) Right. Like, yeah. Or did you feel, did you feel suspected people? Did you think that people didn't really believe you or did you feel like, I didn't feel like like, like, it felt like they were like, what are you doing here? Right. Like either Mm -hmm. you need to go along with the crowd or right. Or, or, or why, why did you come? Like the whole point is that we're all going to say we're guilty of this thing. And, and so I listened. And so they, they went around and they all discussed what was essentially the same story. Right. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, my parents had good jobs. I went to a good school. Um, and I really didn't think about, you know, the challenges that, that black Americans face. So then they got to me and I said, and I'll never forget, <laughs> this is probably not the right thing to say in the moment, but um, because they were doing so much of the like sort of um, saying that they feel like they, they, there's a lot of judgment of, of what I felt was judgment of black Americans as a whole, right? Like the whole thing is like, you're putting an entire group of people in a box and saying like you, in your opinion, they all think a certain way, which is obviously absurd, right? And then your response is to that, all of you have decided it's the same response, which is sort of them doing the same thing that they're criticizing was my perspective. And so I started it by saying, the first thing I wanna say about my experience as a child talking about race in my household growing up was like, I pretty much learned not to trust all of you people, right? What do you mean you people? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. and I, and, and, and they were kind of, you know, confused. And I said, you know, I, I don't think it was beneficial to me as a child to be raised to believe that all people who look a certain way are racist. In fact, it caused me a lot of ch- challenges growing up of being in places where people weren't like me. And of course, at this point, I'm so far down the line in my head in the conversation. They're not with me, right? It's like, I'm trying to say to them, here you have convinced yourself that the children in this school where you teach all rightfully distrust you. And you all are saying why they should rightfully distrust you because you're white people. But I'm telling you that growing up with animosity towards people who are different than me didn't benefit me or, you know, my my black brother or many of my you know my friends of color right when we went to college and said those people we don't trust them right and now they were like wait a second you really shouldn't be here so so i start telling you know why that is and and i always think it's funny that my friend jason wise is a brilliant educator always uses the example of you know there's this common sort of real life meme it's also a meme now on social media it's like one of those real life memes i'm sure you've seen about like white people food right it's bland white people food and and, we, and people laugh about it. and i remember i used to hear that growing up certain things you're right white people can't dance white people have bland food you know um you know and especially mm-hmm. when you, you remember grew up martin old, mull martin mull was a comedian he had a whole thing yeah. about white in america mayonnaise oh, and you know white right. bread and all those things yeah right is that there's actually I remember there's a simpsons where homer's watching a, a, a comedian on tv i'll never forget it and it's a black comedian and he's saying uh white people drive like this like do 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 and black and he's like brothers drive like this he's got his arm out the window yeah. and homer goes oh it's so true we're so lame um <laughs> yeah. 
But Jason always says to me, the funny thing about like that becoming like an accepted norm, like white people food is bland. Is he's like, is Italian food bland? Is French food bland? It like Greeks are considered white. Is Greek food bland? And he goes, and he can go on and on. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, that's just a limited way of thinking. I get it from a humor standpoint, right? Comedian's job is to make fun of things. But when it starts becoming school things, right? And and in education, we're saying all white people are. To me, all those people in their hearts were saying all black people are, right? Because w- once you get into the, to mm-hmm. the that that sort of thinking, right? And that's how they were. That's how they were approaching it. It couldn't be possible that someone who looked like me grew up in a household where we talked about race. It couldn't be possible that you know I wasn't comfortable around you know like stereotypical white people or particularly ones who who, who were wealthy. I had never been around wealthy people until I was in college. So that that was a challenge for me. And then as it progressed and we had more of these meetings, it started to become, you know, things about where they were having children. You know, they were talking about, oh, we we had uh, a speaker come in and the speaker said, told the kids that all white people are racist. You know, the, the Robin D'Angelo, we had a day dedicated to white fragility at the school and it really happened. It, and what was striking to me is the outcome was what I thought, which is that many of the teachers of color who, who I was friends with came up to me and said, that was the worst day ever, right? It didn't, it didn't make anything feel better. In fact, it made people feel more isolated and more pushed away, which is what I thought would be the case. Because um, <laughs> when you're saying things like, we are going to decenter whiteness, but you spend so much time talking about white privilege and whiteness and all these things, you're actually centering it, right? That's how I felt. Yeah. Like you're the you know, one. There, you just reminded me there. There was a we had um an a race explicit Zoom meeting, you know, during the pandemic, and it was just a series of students being asked to sort of profess their privilege one after the other, or or taking the opportunity to do that, volunteering as a way to sort of uh, put blood on the door and say, you know, um, I'm a I am a true believer in the faith. And then, you know, then like we'd like to hear, you know, they didn't want to pressure the black students to speak up because that would have put them on the spot and it would have, you know, for, you know, obvious reasons. But then one volunteered and said, you know, this is a waste of my time. Why am I here? And I, I have to agree. Um, yeah. Like nobody who wants to sit through that? Who who I, I watch people walk out of those meetings after they saw, you know, people do that same sort of like, oh, my privilege, my privilege, my privilege is going, hold on a second. Like what? Where's the benefit for for me here? Okay, so so if you were to compare this kind of anti-racism with the anti-racism that you did in Philadelphia, which is I guess you call the racial identity yeah. awareness or something, where maybe maybe it wasn't race, but it was more cultural. Like I can totally see the benefit of of teachers who are not from a neighborhood learning about the culture of their students and being able to understand their world, right? That's just, I mean, that's like, it's the same thing, you know, community policing, right? You need, you can't just drop from another planet and expect everyone to understand you and, you know, start, I I, I think you, I think you can teach Shakespeare, but you might be a better way to do it. If you know, if you know the population of your students and what their concerns and lives are like, but then this is a, this is something completely different. It sounds totally different. Totally different. And, and, what you just reminded me of was, and, and I have thought about this time and time again, it comes up in my mind all the time. You know, as we sort of, as this this 
this conversation continues and sort of the conversation around CRT blew up like, you know, nationally, of course, you, know, you, you were involved in that. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I don't know, I think I've told you this, but the sort of the ironic thing of, of fair sort of linking us up and saying you should talk to Paul was that I know where I was. Like I know the coffee shop I was in in the village when I saw your letter come up on my newsfeed and I read it and I was with my brother, Mike, and I was like, oh, you got to hear about that this guy wrote and I'm oh, reading wow. it out loud to him walking down the street. I mean, I know I can visualize it so well. It was so meaningful to me. So I always want, you know, I want to thank you for that. Um, oh, it inspired me in a big way. And, and it's part of the reason I'm doing this, because as you know, we talked about the time, it's, it's nerve wracking. I'm still an educator. Um, I am confident in that I have, you know, consistently empowered students and families and, and, and I've always had positive feedback from families, particularly, you know, families of color throughout my, my career. Um, so I, I don't sit around as many, um, teachers do, and I still encounter teachers constantly sort of worried that someone is going to misconstrue them as biased and racist. And, and typically I always take the, who was it that said, was it, was it, was it a, somebody said the scholar or someone said like, I feel like, I want to say it was Thomas Sowell, but it might not have been like, if you really have to constantly worry about whether or not people think you're racist, you're probably kind of racist. Right. And I, and I don't mm-hmm. spend, a, and I understand the fear of teachers for that because we've seen these sort of witch hunts, so to speak, uh, especially amongst students. And you, I know you've talked about that too. Uh, and I'll tell you a st- story about it. But um, what, I, what I, you just reminded me of was, as this conversation grows, there are so many black scholars, black men and women who are complete evidence of what people like uh, Ibram Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones want to sort of deny exists, which is that people who have had success and said, you know, America was a place of opportunity for me. And there's so, and, and whether you're talking about McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, Sowell, Thomas Chatterton Williams, Coleman Hughes, Ian Rowe has been great in doing that stuff in schools, or Henry Louis Gates Jr., the historian, the black historian who, who, you know, wrote a whole essay. I feel like it was in the Times, but that was like over a decade ago about like, you know, we can't spend all our time just leaning on, even though white supremacy and racism are real, we can't continue to just lean on that as, as the problem. There are more problems to focus on. And he sort of got a backlash. He also consistently has talked about like dividing, you know, po- poverty stricken whites and blacks being sort of the key to power in the United States. And, and so mm-hmm. it, it still very much feels to me that we do that. And we, we, whereas there are so many commonalities, I grew up around both poor black and poor white people and um, ironically, in that area where I grew up of Pennsylvania, when I go back there, I see more camaraderie uh, because poverty is, is a shared experience. Right. Um, so when, so what you reminded me is that when I when they brought up reading White Fragility and Robin D'Angelo at that school, my, I raised my hand in the meeting and said, you know, when you say that, you know, we live in. A society dominated by white supremacy and and whiteness being centered why are we choosing a book written by a white woman right to talk about race when you could read james baldwin or zora neale hurston or all these like legendary you know richard Wright, these legendary black authors uh who who i grew up reading right if you and you use that the comparison like how is it different from in the school in west philadelphia like mm-hmm. we were talking about culture and and without without um restricting like we didn't say you know well these are white teachers we can't talk about black culture and the response from the admin in the meeting was like well we feel that 
white educators are going to digest the words of a white woman better. And all I can think is, aren't we just giving in to the very thing you're criticizing? You're, you're going to sit here in a meeting and say, you know, white educators are, they're not going to want to read or take an interest in the perspectives and lived experience of black authors. Why are we doing any of this then? Right. And as, as time passes, it, what I'm constantly feel like I'm sharing with people is that what makes what marks CRT as unique in its perspective when, you know, Derek Bell and, and the other attorneys at Harvard sort of came up with it is it, it takes the standpoint of like, there is no argument. We're not debating this. There is no back and forth. This is it. And if you don't like it, we're not talking to you. And Kendi won't debate McWhorter, you know that, or Lowry or Coleman Hughes have all offered to debate him. He won't debate. Robin D'Angelo doesn't debate anyone. There's no discussion. And you and I, as educators, very much, I know we both believe in that in order to succeed, children and adults have to be, their views have to be challenged to grow. I mean, I don't know if you read Coddling of the American Mind. Jonathan Haidt has talked mm -hmm. about that a lot. And that's cognitive development, right? You need it. But this doesn't do it. And it was so striking to me that it, it made me physically uncomfortable that like, oh, we're not having a conversation here. We're saying this is our viewpoint. What Robin D'Angelo says is our viewpoint. And we're taking that standpoint as a school. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's funny. You raised a lot of a lot there for me. Um, it's 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 essentially like a kind of fatalism. I think about it as being what does it mean to to actually operate from the premise that, okay, we know there are social constructionists, right? We know race isn't real. It is a fiction, which is a kind of collective delu you know, delusion. I got in trouble at my school for calling it a delusion. Um, but you could you could say it was a very, very pronounced delusion that people right. have and operates, you know, interstitially without everything that we see and perceive. Um, but to actually say, well, as a white person, you are um, limited in what you can process. And so we're going to feed you back through this feedback loop. We're just going to give you the thing that you, from someone that you can already only, you know, you can only understand. And I got, you know, my in my letter, I talked about the same thing happening, being pushed the same thing with the black students. So the black students were denied when I petitioned my head of school, denied you know, my teaching of Glenn Lowry around issues of um, what he calls the development narrative mm -hmm. um, around race. Uh, and the reason given was that would be confusing to the students, that would inflame them, that, you know, in our particular historical moment, this would be, you know, too disruptive. And, right. you know, I'm saying, uh, well, you know, here's a guy an incredibly accomplished professor who teaches at a school that these students would hope to go to Brown an Ivy league school. Um, and like they might apply there. And, you know, furthermore, this is not a guy who grew up in privilege, right? He grew up right. in a redlined area of Chicago, um, middle, you know, very middle class, you know, or, you know, struggled a lot, um, and achieved, you know, great things um through his own efforts and so what does it mean when a i'm being constrained from 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 giving that perspective to to the very students that would be the most curious about it because it's too dangerous Absolutely. so so what it does is it basically ghettoizes uh and i'm going to use that word because it's an it's an italian word uh ghettoizes different 
populations and says, you know, th this is the only thing that you can understand. And, and so the, the head of school said, you know, well, why don't you give them some white conservatives, some conservatives that are white and that that will fit their paradigm of what a conservative is. <laughs> so essentially it's the fatalism is just, you're going right. to capitulate to this racial, these racial blinders. So for what, for, for how are we ever going to escape the hall of mirrors? If we never, you know, we're never actually breaking our assumptions, you know, directly. Um, and even the whole concept of identity, right? Like you are white. Well, what makes me white? How white am I? Well, what right. am I white? White, you know, race isn't a real thing. Ethnicity is, culture is, but what is white? Like you said, there's French and Italians and yeah, uh, and, and Iranians, you know, every, these people are considered white. So what makes me white is that everyone else thinks I'm white. Well, then, you know, if everyone jumped off a bridge, should I jump off a bridge? What right. are we telling I mean, our students? You know, like, it just makes sense. There are, it, it, I always find that an interesting, you know, dichotomy, the, the idea that like, you know, we want to encourage children to embrace the identity that they, and that's great, right? I, I, I very much want children to embrace the identity. I mean, I remember, and a lot of people don't, may not have this experience, right? I remember, you know, teaching in a school in Philly where all the students are of color, right? There are children that would debate, you know, what that meant to them, right? I don't want to be called black, Mr. Malley. They weren't saying they want to be called white, but I want to be, okay, how do you want to be, how do you want to be perceived? Because they would say, these are 12, 13 year old kids would say to me, like, I've already learned growing up in the community I live in that we put certain stigma uh, around what it means to be black. And I want to just be looked at as me. So I agree. Let's embrace identity, except when it comes to educators and things around the idea of CRT, where it's like, no, Paul Rossi, this is your identity. I'm going to tell you what it is which is like you said social socially constructed and we for a long time you know post civil rights and uh, we're saying you know well and i grew up with that belief from you know from black mentors right larry you know what i mean like we don't it's it, it race is socially constructed and 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 we don't buy into the limiting of that it makes you this or that and that's how you should feel and and now you're in these spaces run by predominantly run by i was in like by people of privilege who didn't come from my background, regardless of their ethnic background, who've worked in and gone to private schools their whole life, which are elitist institutions. And I'm not bothered by that, by the way. I work in them. I'm not bothered by the elitism of them. But then are telling other people what they are? It's like we, we don't believe in the, we, don't, we know it's socially constructed. So let's lean heavily into that social construct and fixate strictly on that. And I like that you brought up history. And, like, that's what I felt like they were doing, like just leaning into the like, well, can't avoid it. So let's just embrace it. And you mentioned using it, you know, using history or, um, you know, you use the term ghettoize. And I think how many people would put a racial connotation over, on that? And that just shows a lack of understanding of history. Right. Like that the term ghetto is not at all exclusive to or originates here. And I deal with this constantly with the people who tell me, you know, well, CRT is about, I was just debating with a friend who I love dearly, who was, you know, sort of pushing the CRT is about teaching real history. And he's not a history teacher. And I'm not a historian, but I do fancy myself someone who researches and history and always has, and it's been a part of my life and my culture. 
I, I, I think of all the things those people who say that have said to me about, well, it's teaching real history. And this is coming from people who know very little about real history. I had an educator, sorry about that, say that to me who was a DEI director and follow it with, you know, he told me people of color around the world had no exposure to oppression and violence prior to their encounters with Europeans. And this is a DEI director who full on believed this. Yeah, and, my and, own and, head of schools, you know, I, sorry to interrupt. I had a, no, I had please. a student, I had a student, yeah. um, very, very bright girl, like went on to great things. Um, and I remember she, she said to me, she had just come out of a uh, history class. She said, you know, everything, everything bad in this, in this world has been created by white people. And I remember that kind of, I, that kind of surprised me. And I, I didn't challenge her, but I went to my head of school and I said, you know, a student, a student said this. Um, and he said, well, I know that, you know, first he said, you know, well, I know that you believe in free speech, right? And I said, yeah. And I said, well, do you think that we should do anything about that? And I said, well, no, she's fine. I have no problem with her expressing her opinion. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to say, well, she's actually correct. And I, I did this moment where, you know, when you kind of the needle on the record goes and you, yeah. you, know, you can look up or, and I remember like, this is an educated man. This is a man who I know, like went to the best schools. He's well-read, right. you know, and you just have to, I just found myself puzzling through the cognitive dissonance of this person, this urbane, genteel, well-read, knowledgeable individual who is the head of school at or head of the high school at, at, at a you know top private school saying this and thinking well you know I, I i'm presenting these counterexamples which are just totally obvious um you know shaka zulu or you know uh yeah. genghis khan or you know take your pick like um and he just didn't really have a response or he changed the subject and i was like how how is this is the myopia, myopia, however pronounced it, so great that we can't be well, real? Like, and what's the, and it goes back to your question about, you know, when I mentioned that, those meetings, right? Like, what's the, what's the driving force behind that? And how much of sort of human nature are you ignoring? So to, I would say, you know, it doesn't empower children for them to believe that in the right. least. In fact, it denies humanity. If the perspective from the people we're, we're talking about is that, um, uh, you know, uh, European people have done all these atrocities, which is true. I, I already, I already hear in my mind, like people hearing us talking and think that this is about yeah, def yeah, defending yeah. Europeans, defending, I don't have an interest in that. I'm certainly happy to talk about all the atrocities. I mean, I'm a Jewish family of, of Holocaust survivors living in our family, you know, in our family right now. Um, however, it doesn't, it wouldn't benefit me to pretend that, you know, German people hadn't done atrocities against Jewish. It wouldn't benefit me at all or to pretend that all Jews. And, and this is very Zora Neale Hurston wrote all about this. She wrote, I don't have the luxury of race pride. If I pretend that when someone who looks like me does something great, that that's because we look the same, then I must then I must tell myself that when someone who looks like me does something horrible, that that's also because we're the same. Right. And then I have to feel shame for people who did something horrible that looks like me in the same way that I have to feel pride for people that, oh, look, someone who looks like me did something great. That's not you. All Jewish people mm -hmm. are not Einstein. Zora Neale Hurston literally wrote that. All white men are not Thomas Ed Edison, but also, right, 
all, all black men are not George Washington Carver, and that's fine. But when we, when kids come to me, and they have, and they, they come to me for history class, and they tell me they've learned that uh, Native Americans had no concept of war prior to Europeans coming here. I think, well, you're denying the story of proud mm. people, right? The Comanches are, were a proud tribe of warriors who fought for decades and decades to, to maintain their land. We're going to deny, and they, and they had conquered other tribes, right? That, and that's mm -hmm. valuable information. You're going to deny their history, or you're going to deny, like you said, Shaka Zulu, you're going to deny that, that people are more than what you're limiting to them, them to be. And that's how I felt when I walked into those meetings. It was all about painting uh, Black Americans as strictly victims to be pitied and rather denying the, the, the richness of background for the bad and the good, right? All humans have that. That's what humanity is. We all have bad and good in us. Our histories all have bad and good in them. Why would we want to? And that's actually, you know, people think whitewashing and they think that whitewashing is making history white, but the term whitewashing is something that meant like just erasing portions of history for whatever vantage point it was. It wasn't just for, mm -hmm. you know, white supremacy. It was for the benefit of whatever group in power. I remember, you know, learning in, a, in college about the, the idea of the noble savage. This yeah. is this kind of is just another form of that. It's it's right. through a look through the telescope backwards, but it's the same kind of principle. Um, there, there's a there's a YouTube video out there by um, Slavoj Žižek. You know him. He's a I don't. He is a I think he's Slovenian. Um, he's a Marxist, or he was an ex-Marxist, or he's a quasi-Marxist. But but it's, he tells a story. Um, about uh, to illustrate the idea that when the when this sort of white liberal anti-racist guilt complex plays out with people from other parts of the world, this it, it's it's a way for them to maintain their uh, their objectivity and their frame. If you can take all the sins of the world on yourself and deny anybody else any of their sins, uh, well, then you've kind of it's another way to sort of maintain hegemony, moral hegemony. Because yeah. you say, well, even if you did something bad, it was because of colonialism. Or, and so uh, he describes. I think it's two um, Nigerian scholars who are just appalled by this, and and I, that leads me to a question I had for you, where they say, you know, what, um, you know, you've taken away our our our, our capacity for evil. You've denied our yeah. humanity, and that yeah, yeah. we're no, we're now we can't even be evil. It's even worse than saying that we are evil all the time. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's the 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 funhouse mirror of you can never be good as you can never be evil, but it's sort of the same warp distortion. How do we get uh, how do we get out of this? And the question I had uh, you remind me of earlier was when you when you talked about the white fragility training and you had you had teachers who are, you know, people of color, or other teachers approach you saying, you know, that they were really disturbed by it what what how did they articulate what disturbed them i'm really i'm curious i think what particularly disturbed them was that it, it to, to sim, like sort of to the simple answer is that people go into those things hoping that they feel empowered on the way out mm. right um and they didn't right and because it, it doesn't it's not a boost Right. To hear, like you said, people sit around and talk about their privilege and how they feel bad for you. That's not a boost to your to your empowerment. And this may sound a little harsh, but I think there was a lot of and this is from me talking to people. So I'm, I'm going to you know say that I got this directly. It's not just an assumption. A lot of people I know uh, who are of color who liked the book said that 
even though they disagreed a, a, with a lot of what Robin D'Angelo said. And, and I do want to point out that they made the whole faculty at this school watch a video of her talking how she, about how she came to this work. And even that, I thought, and I know firsthand it was offensive to a lot of people because what she says, and she's open about this, anyone can look this up, is that you know she got a job as a, as a uh, DEI director at a university knowing well that she didn't know any black people she applied for and received a job you know as a dei director and she said well i figured you know i'm i'm a vegetarian you know i represent diversity she said that mm -hmm. um so so you have the audacity to go into something saying yeah i don't really know any black people at all but i'm going to be the dei director and then had an encounter with a black woman who who called her out on an ignorant comment i believe it was about black women's hair and then she had this awakening, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that she she now realized how how racist she was, and she needs to go out and tell everyone else how racist they are. Um, I think that moment made, a, and I think a lot of people, you know, this in schools, like they read the beginning of a book, they're like, ah, this white woman came mm -hmm. to the realization she's racist. I like that. Let's get other white people to do that. So it was like, mm -hmm. oh, we like that. If you got bigger into the book, right? I remember her talking about that. Uh, you know. Uh, as a white person, all beautiful spaces are welcome and open to her. She talks about that in the book. And uh, that beautiful spaces in the world are not open to people of color, right? What, what an absurd statement, right? Like, you know how many places I've been in the world that are beautiful where it's, no, there are no, there are no white people there. <laughs> like, I've been yeah. to Africa, I've been to China. Like, are you saying, Robin D'Angelo, that these places are not beautiful, right? Or, you know, she goes, and there's so many uh, assumptions that she makes. Um, so uh, I'm trying, trying to remember how we got to that with your question. Uh, I, your question was, how did people walk out of that? I think when people yeah. walked out of that, they got a bigger piece of the pie beyond just, oh, white people are coming to a reckoning that racism is real. They got the deeper assumptions that come with that particular book or a lot of the rhetoric around that mindset. And they said, yeah, this doesn't make me feel comfortable. And and I think that it connects to the sort of like, how does this empower children that are struggling? And I, I wrote about that extensively at the time because I kept reflecting on my experience as a child and the experience mm -hmm. of kids I taught in Philadelphia. And I'm going, all right, so you're going to go around and tell kids who are in struggling environments. And, and I think the safe space conversation is similar. Like we all need to be in safe spaces and um, we uh, should feel like all white people are racist. This doesn't limit a child who comes from extraordinary wealth. If you come from extraordinary wealth and you live in a bubble and maybe you have helicopter, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that all people who come from wealth have that, I'm saying, but if you do, right, and, and you felt safe, and obviously, again, not saying that all kids of wealth feel safe, they, they, many of them have their own very challenging, real issues in their lives, I'm not denying that, but if you're talking about, uh, parts of society, mar marginalized parts of groups where, like where I taught in Philly, where all the kids are coming from a low economic situation and the violence in the community right now in Philadelphia, where I'm from, um, you know, the, the murder rate hit a record last year. The violence is out of control in Philadelphia. We're having school shootings and shootings at football games. And it's terrible. It's terrible. I, I know six former students who have, who have uh, lost their lives to gun violence from that school. Um, 
And so all I could think about was my students already came from the perspective of their, they already coming from an isolated environment where they don't get out in the world, their poverty or the limits of their family situation limits them. And now we're going to start pushing a narrative that all white people are racist, right? That spaces are not safe. And that limits struggling kids in all, not just in the inner city, but in rural America too, from going out into the world, because now you're afraid, right? It doesn't mm. limit the children who come from means. In fact, when I think that when you learn to have empathy, right, you're actually benefiting the, you're teaching the, the, the kids of means empathy, which benefits you as you go on into society and college and get a job, mm. but you're teaching fear to those who are not at the top. You're not teaching them empathy at all. You're teaching them paranoia. It's sort of like a, a, a massive escalation of the talk, you know, like you, right. you, the black child gets the talk and it says, but watch out for cops. And here's how, you know, you need to be aware of this or you need to understand. But it's it's taken to exponential levels where you're sort of trained to see. I mean, racism, a, a racial anima, animus against you in every possible condition um and the question is of course not you know is racism present but how is it present and and then as as the white person you your interrogation is is endless as to your own biases and how am i being racist um you know in this situation because i am um so you mentioned something earlier you said when you grew up you you found that that didn't work for you that or maybe i'm getting you wrong but you said that um, when you when you grew up and you went to college, that idea of of having um, that kind of animosity was who was there someone in your family that was sort of giving you that perspective and and in in your different voices in your family around race did did you have someone playing that role? I think it was a little bit of brian and i who you know who's who's my you know best friend slash brother I mean, we, we grew up in the same house since we're very little so we call each other brothers you know we were obsessed with eldridge cleaver and the black panthers and malcolm x and public enemy and as children you know it's it's funny to see not funny but right interesting right to see it become a movement now for teenagers to sort of look for and oh, that person's being racist. I, rem I remember seeing on Facebook a friend of mine who's also an educator, a black educator, writing about it concerned him how often children were saying this thing's racist. Anything's racist. Mm -hmm. The Marvel movies are racist. Uh, you know, music, everything's. And 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 then uh, white people responding on there. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. He said, No, no, no. Mm -hmm. It's not wonderful. You're diminishing. You know what real racism? Of course, we've seen that in all sorts of. We talk about you know. The, the 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 Jesse Smollett situation. We're seeing people right like blow, blowing things intentionally out of proportion, which then so the counter is like you know, diminishing the actual impact of where you see it really right, mm -hmm. and doesn't allow for the opportunity in many times to restore because um, you know if you're going to start yelling at, at someone you're racist, you're racist, you're racist. They and especially as you mentioned, white people being concerned about their own biases, like you're sort of shutting down the conversation for growth in, in many situations. So for us, we sort of had like a militant perspective at like 11 and 12. And of course, we grew up in a town where it was, it, it, there was, you know, I didn't grow up in Philadelphia. I moved to Philadelphia later. I, I lived in a town in Pennsylvania when I was young. And, you know, there were race, there were racists. We knew that, right? And and we, we fought, sometimes we got in fights with them, right? And, we, and so, um, you know, I had this sort of angry, like, 
oh, this is how those people think. And as I got older, I started to, to, to learn about different people and think of, and start to realize like people are a product of what they learned. It's not their fault. If you sort of, if you grow up with, without, you know, exposure to certain things you don't know. Right. And so most people are willing to understand that, right? Like in mm -hmm. society, most of us, if you meet someone, I've had people come to my house and make comments that were either disrespectful, you know, what people would consider disrespectful to Jewish people or Muslim friends of mine at a dinner table. And then we have mm -hmm. a conversation about it, right? Because that should be the goal. You know what? I didn't, the person said, I didn't realize I was being offensive, blah, 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 right? So, yeah. I, I, so I, I grew, and as I did, I was able to, to actually make changes, right? And there's all these examples of people um, who have done this in society, right? That what's the guy's name? You, you know, the guy that went around and worked with people in the clan, Daryl Davis, Daryl Davis. Yeah, like yeah. I started to learn about the, the, the potential of being accepting to different people's beliefs and realizing that most of that was imposed on them. And I was watching educators vehemently disagree with that concept, right? Say things like if a child thinks something is racist, you should tell them that it is. Right, and right. I immediately hearken my mind to you're gaslighting them if you don't. Right, you're gaslighting if you don't. And I remember times specifically in Philadelphia with teenage children that I worked with, where there was violence between two kids over a misunderstanding. Right? Oh, I think he said something about my sister or my mom or blah blah blah. And, mm. and then I'm breaking up a fight and I'm talking to kids and say, "Okay, let's sit down. What happened? I thought it was a miss." And then they walk away. Oftentimes. They would walk away with the situation healed or saying to me, Mr. Melly, thank you. I was so angry and now I feel better. Thank you. And then you want me to go to a school and tell a black child that another child was racist just because they think it, it may not be true. And then you want them to go home to their home, which may be outside of the community where the school is. And maybe they come from a low income household and they're in a school full of rich, you know, wealthy kids, some of whom are billionaire families or flying in private jets. They're already feeling isolated because of the economic disparity. And now we want to tell them that if you feel something's racist, it is. How is that helping that child? Yeah, it's sort of like um, here, here's your hostile attribution bias. That thing that you may automatically feel because of your aggression and right. amygdala's, you know, squeezing itself. And that's all part of being an adolescent. You know, we're going to actually legitimize it. We're going to give you, we're going to let you use this as a justification for, for your worst suspicions. Yeah. Uh, it is totally counterproductive. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's funny what you said about having people over dinner, someone says something racist or, you know, maybe just ignorant and then you work it out. That is like, that is actually what is the, they're not wrong that that's the norm because everyone has abstractions and categorical thoughts that, and no individual can be captured by that. So obviously there's going to be incommensurates and you're going to find out and something's going to be insulted and, but you have it out. And that's what happens when you have a friend, we have a friend. Right. Um, now there's this thing now where, you know, if you have a black friend that disqualifies you, the assumption is, again, because of hostile attribution bias, the only reason why you would mention that is if you were trying to cover up that you are, you know, <laughs> your racism. Now, I can totally understand. I can I can acknowledge that historically people have used that 
you know, as some sort of insulation and to get away with being a racist. Yeah, fine. But but to, you know, now it's become just a, a, a knee jerk reaction. If anyone talks about a friend who is different race than you and what you learn from them, that you're simply masking your racism by it. Sorry, my cat is is going crazy in the litter box. <laughs> no um, that how you know how do we when in fact that is the only way that true enlightenment comes is one person having a real interaction with another person and making mistakes and that person in an unscripted way you know realizing it so you know how do we how do we get back to this thing where it's okay to have black friends and learn from them like well, it very much yeah. reminds me of I, I want to share this with you. I sort of, I've got, I got the pass from uh, my friends who still work in that school in, in West Philly to share this. Um, you know, they said, don't tell our names, but you go ahead and share yeah. it. Um, you know, you, you remember as this sort of, and, and I think it's interesting. And I actually just heard Coleman Hughes talk to Ian Rowe and he said, he wasn't sure if the sort of social justice wokeness for that, that really emerged in private colleges and private um prep schools has 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 sort of uh worked its way into uh schools in in the inner city you know like regular public school and, and it has and, and ian rose said yeah it has mm. um because you have people pushing these ideas and and one of them i'm sure you remember was that idea that like um don't ask don't ask a a person of color to explain their 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 experience or their perspective to you like that's offensive right don't don't that you figure it out on your own, right? Mm, you have to be the, the ally, yeah. do the work, figure it out on your own. So you started to have, you know, uh, white women, you know, who many times were very desperate to show their virtue and their like sort of doing that. And um, what was happening in the school where I used to work is that uh, where in the past we had um, a team of mostly uh black male and some female uh people who uh, educators who were sort of like the the deans and the were kind of like the the medium between you know the 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 kids the school and the community um who worked very much with families and were they were tough on the kids in the way that like you know we love you mm -hmm. right but we're also going to be tough and we're going to say you have to get through this because these are your challenges even if you come from you know, an abusive environment and, and, and you don't, you know, your father's not around and, and, and so, but I need to push you. And that shifted to, they now have what's called an anchor team. This is my understanding, by the way, um, of women who are sort of just coddling children. Uh, and then you have children who they get in trouble and uh, they go to these women who just tell them it's okay. It's not your fault. You, you know, you're oppressed and all these things. And then the kids come back, they do the same behavior over and over again, because you get to go, no one's pushing you. You just get to go to that room and have someone sort of stroke your insecurities and your fears. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it became pushback argument in the school and, and, you know, black educators and black women were saying, whoa, 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 you're not helping these kids. You're coddling them. And some of my friends said, hey, this is what happens when you tell these people, you know, you figure it out right? You have to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. You have to have the conversations about culture. You have to have the conversations about, you know, the differences or, or from their environment. 
you can't just say you figure it out. You're not going to like the results, right? Yeah, right. If you're Especially. actually, if the if the challenge is as big as we say it is around yeah. racism and people marginalized communities, how could you just say figure it out? Like you wouldn't say, you know, I, I have a brain tumor. Uh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to ask the doctor who's an expert on that. That would be offensive. I'm going to ask somebody else, or I'm going to just figure it out. Yeah, if exactly. If it's a big deal, like, like why would you do that? That's not what colleagues really should do anyway. Like you, this, I wonder, like, it's, it's so very formalized, like, okay, well, okay, maybe there's, you know, okay, they're going to get called out and then they're going to go on another iterative loop of doing the work and they're going to make other mistakes and then they're going to be called out. For, so it's just this, why can't you just have a conversation? Like, why, why do we need to go through all these scripted, this scripted dance of, like you're saying, you know, we're going to have this wall where it's like okay you know as a woman of color i you know i need to tell you as a person of paleness that you don't know this and therefore so like it just strikes me um it kind of reminds me of tech right so i i did um i learned to code right when i didn't work out as a poet and i yeah i i bluffed my way into a job at Right. HBO. I said, I knew things Good I didn't. Job. I got there. I, you know, and there, there weren't, there was no credential. There was no like Microsoft certification. It was just like, right. Oh, can you make a web page? Sure. You know, here's, here's the book on HTML. Oh, I better learn how to do this. And you make a web page and the people are like, Oh, wow. Yeah. He can really make a web page. Look at him. You know, so then you get a yeah. job and then, um, but I think what we have now is this kind of credentialing of these things that were probably, that are actually best left to people like, you know, yourself in, in a genuine inner city environment where you're, you have the background and you're the expert. Now these other, this sort of class of, I want to say like an expert class has graduated from the schools and they are the DEI high priests and they yeah. will tell everyone, they will be making judgment about your racial categorization and what you know and what you don't know. And, you know, they can be humble about it. And they will be humble and they'll say, you know, I am, you know, I'm still learning, you know, and, and everyone's on a different part of this journey, but it is this sort of endless horizon and we will be your shepherd. We will be the good shepherd. And, you know, so they, this is a kind of a weird credential capture, right. you know, but instead of like, you know, now, and then of course in coding, it changed because then you had you have people graduating from coding schools and then, you know, you actually need a, that was my analogy, but I uh, love yeah. the analogy because sorry, sorry to cut you off. No, I, yeah, yeah. That's I, great. I, I, got it. It's interesting. And, and using the high priest term, right. Is interesting because I, I, I've spent so much time in these, in, in various spaces, right. It's what I do. And I get that you want to celebrate the uniqueness of that. We're at a point where we're acknowledging various people's, um, challenges and struggles but you're still isolating right like mm -hmm. like you're still saying like we specifically it's not really about to go back to that point about like empathy anyone else's struggle and and i operate in all environments particularly in in schools from the perspective that everyone you speak to has a their own unique struggle and if you want to make a better environment or community you have to approach it that way right you have to you could sit, look at a person and say um you know based on what I think that they go to this, this elite school and that they're, they have light skin, 
they're privileged and you're not benefiting yourself, let alone that person or the community. In fact, I've many situations that, that and I've worked at more than one school in New York where in DEI meetings, I, you know, sometimes they do that thing where you talk about your, your life experience, right? And I would go to other conferences, right? DEI conferences, and they'd put you in a group of random people and you talk about their life, your life experience. And almost every time, Paul, I, I kid you not, like when I talked about my childhood and the struggles like that, that my family had, and, you know, I had a single parent raised by my mother and, you know, there was drug addiction and all these things in my family. People would look at me and, and literally say out loud, but you're not black. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've right. had people I'll say to you. me, I yeah. didn't know. And then I would say, well, you know, there's, there's all kinds of poor people in America. And I've had people more than once say, I didn't know poor white people exist, or I've never met one. Right. Well, I mean, also this, it's so weird because it's distorted lens around black people too. I mean, do they, do people, people, you're associating black people with being broke. Like right. that's what people do who come from this mentality. You know, I know the poverty line is, is, is not necessarily definitive about who's poor, but you know, I think the last statistics I saw were 20% of black families are in poverty right like, you know so what does that tell you about the other 80 percent? and what does that tell you you know and then the white number is like 10 percent or something 12 percent. right it's there's a disparity let's not let's there is but but it's not like 50 percent or 60 percent it's it not also, the, it's been getting better and it looks different you know? very different if you start to take in other data points right like if you look yeah. at various ethnicities right of right. different people, right? Or if you look at, you know, uh, this is a, I'm a big fan of that, that Ian Rowe talks about this, you know, he, he has that, uh, he has a book called Agency out now. And, and he says, you know, um, agency is individually practiced. I love this. I, I want to really give him credit for this quote. I wish more people would get it. Agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered, right? Saying it, it is on the, the onus is on people, kids individually to learn about mm -hmm. agency and how they can practice that agency for their own sake um yep. but you know i think that it's sort of like cultivating like you you're going to grow a plant you want to create the conditions but the plant has to grow the plant has it's to like, grow and plant, yeah he talked about teaching kids in the bronx uh, uh how okay if we look at um simply look at like you know the 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 black uh you know family uh income versus white you're going to look at it and say, look at this, this disparate, right? Look at this outcome. Mm -hmm. But if you say, all right, well, let's look at white people who get married before they have kids and get college degrees and black people who get married before they have children and get college degrees. So you could say to the kids, look, you know what? If you take this certain path, right? And the you get a degree sequence. and yes. the, right, the, yeah. right, that's exactly what he says then there is a much higher chance of success. And then that, that sort of uh, distance between, you know, income isn't really that it's, it's not, it's, it's not there so much. And he says it. And then he said he got in trouble for saying that because mm. people would say, well, those kids really don't have, you know, an, an exposure to a lot of people who have two parents in the house or, and I, of course I've taught in an environment like that and, and, and don't have exposure to people other than the teachers who got a lot of college degrees. So it's not fair. And I thought, well, that's funny because do you want to normalize their situation in a way that they can't strive for something greater? Like what would be the purpose of doing that in 
schools I worked in, and uh, you may have experienced this too, in New York, private schools, they would have affinity groups for children of, you know, either a divorce, it was like mm -hmm. broken home sort of, they didn't call it that, mm -hmm. but right, children who had divorced parents or one parent home because someone had passed. And it was such a small group of kids, you could have an affinity group around that. But in Philadelphia, that's most of the kids, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're identifying in elite schools that that's a struggle that kids have to go through, then you have to admit that it's a struggle and a hurdle for kids in low economic situations. And how are you helping them, right? If you're, if you're saying, well, they can't possibly get out of that, so let's not encourage them to get out of that. Okay, so so let me just be the devil's advocate here. Let's say, right. you know, um, well, wasn't this just, you know, pull up your pants, you know, pull yourself by your bootstraps. We're expecting them to do things that they, like they said, they haven't been exposed to this. Um, how are you going to expect them to suddenly make choices that that maybe they don't even see them as a choice? What do you what do you say to that? So, I, I, yeah, I, I think that we have to acknowledge to them that there is and I and I do uh, do this with students. Right. You have to acknowledge that there is in every society right there. There is uh, unequal opportunity in the sense that legally we've created a situation where you can't legally give someone, you know, you can't deny someone's opportunity to a thing in society, but kids can all say like, oh, if you come from, if you, if you are, you know, a good thing, I've seen Hollywood sort of people in Hollywood talking about that Hollywood has that, um, you know, if you're not already in that world, right? If your parents weren't in the entertainment industry and you don't come from that environment, good luck succeeding in that, right? So you could use that, or you could just say, you know, if you're going to be, you know, work as a banker or an attorney and you grow up with two attorney parents, of course, of course, your chances are greater, right? That's, yeah, that's yeah. a fact. And so do some people get a break because they get a better path because of their, their access to wealth and experience and all these things? Of course. But are there a lot of places where no matter what you come from, the opportunity is there if you go out and get it? Yes. And to ask, and I think Bill Maher was just talking about, he just did one of those rules, rule, new rules, and he was talking about both sides, Republican and Democrat, expressing their hate for America. I feel like when people like Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones or AOC, or they, they paint this picture of like, no matter what you do, if you're a person of color, you're not going to get past 400 years of oppression. You're just denying the reality that so many people do that and that so many people come here from other countries where they were in, in poverty, whether it's in Asia or Africa, and they make it here and they'll tell you straight up there's not a more there's not a better place to have that it's not perfect including it's not fair. including aoc and nicole hannah jones right and nicole um, hannah jones who got married had kids went to college like right, had kids after yeah. she got married got deg multiple degrees right so and, and then and then right yeah sorry go ahead and then and then and then yeah. we you know sort of openly not we but there was a argument over historians who have taught history for years i mean if we're talking about we want to teach real history. Shouldn't we look to the historians in these pre prestigious institutions like Princeton, who we should be able to assume are not racist and want to deny, they don't want, certainly they don't want to deny slavery. I didn't learn, as you didn't learn in school, that we didn't learn that slavery didn't happen. We didn't learn that it was good. We didn't learn any of those things. All Historians, of course, acknowledge that, but, but pushed back on her 1619 project because they said there's some stuff in here that's not valid and doesn't hold up. And schools were saying, teach this, teach this as a curriculum. And when they were when she was criticized, rightfully so, because we should take a close look at history and have the debate if we're going to make progress. Mm -hmm. 
she and her supporters pushed back that they were being racist, right? Just strictly mm -hmm. racist. You can't have a debate yeah. over a single person's view of history that doesn't, you know. I mean, we should read, we should read 1619. We should, kids should read yeah. it. They should read Howard Zinn. They should, they underst yeah. but understand that it is a lens, but it's not the lens, right? And say, yeah. okay, what is this missing? What are the, what are the cherries they're picking? What are the nuts they're picking? And what is left out that creates this narrative? Here's another one. And the fact is that they're all, they're, they all have truth to them, right? And it's like, you need to, you need to have a very broad kaleidoscopic look at things. Um, there's no yeah. objectivity in the sense that, you know, there's no non-narrative facts, you know, agglomeration of facts. We do think in terms of patterns and stories, but, um, you know, have as many of those as possible. They say that, you know, that's the danger of a single story, um, which is the grain of truth in that. But also um, they want to tell the multiple stories intersectionally which is its own single story it is it's funny so, that you yeah. use that example because she's you know uh chimamanda adiche who did that danger of a single story mm -hmm. i think it's interesting that we will you know sort of present that in schools the danger of a single story but then at the same time give a single story right i always found right. that fascinating like yeah ed administrators and other educators are always thrilled when i teach about her danger of a single story uh speech and why it's relevant and then on the other hand do the exact opposite. Yes, it's a fascinating that that the way I don't think that's what she intended, the author. Yeah. Maybe I had you know, it's been a while, but like I think the way it's being exploited politically to do the opposite. Um right. it's really it's I mean, you could you know, that could be a whole show in itself. Um yeah. Um but one thing that I'm I'm really interested in starting and trying to build is a is a teacher network of chalkboard heretics uh, like us who could benefit from a sort of crowdsourced materials that are very granular to to their experience and discipline in a school situation where the administration has a single story or a single way of presenting things around DEI. How do you you know and that filters into every subject. How can educators um, connect with each other and learn from each other as far as like, I want to introduce a different viewpoint than 6019. I got to teach 6019. I know that if I raise certain things that the students are already programmed to object, right? right? To come to come at me and, you know, some version mm -hmm. of I'm either immoral or I'm ignorant or as a teacher, or as a white male, whatever, right? So, right. and this doesn't just happen to white male teachers, it happens to everybody. Um, what can I do to get around it without, you know, with all the risk tolerance that I have as a teacher that wants to get paid? Right? You know, I have my very, I have my, my, my very biased answer, like my perspective on that. And I, you know, I've learned maybe kind of the hard way of why it's my bias, right. Is that, um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work with social emotional learning, which I feel like collectively a lot of people in society are now connect because of the word social. They're like mm. social justice, socially, they think it's the same thing. And of mm. course you can sort of, they can merge, they can be cross-curricular, but they're not the same thing. Um, but the reason I've taken such an interest in it and I've, I've done it in, in various schools is because, you know, I was, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I was coming from that standpoint. Initially, my response to the challenge my students in Philly were facing was like, you know, you really have to start to make kids feel comfortable in who they are and in the in, in in school and you have to make them feel empowered first 
uh, before you can start to have those tougher conversations. And junior, middle school, high school are very tough times for kids, right? Um, so when I started working on that, those sort of things, I got a lot of pushback from teachers, right? I always found this, this is another one of those ironies, right? Around the mm -hmm. social justice stuff. It's like pushback from teachers who were like, I don't do that, right? And and really it's, 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 it's simple as like starting to, you know, put into your work, um, you know, how you find out more about the students, who they are personally, what matters to them, how they connect to other students. Like, like what's the social emotional vibe of the, and teachers mm -hmm. say, I don't do that. I teach, I teach whatever I teach math or I teach mm -hmm. science. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to know anything about the kids. I don't want to open up about my life. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to teach my subject. All right. But at the same time you're in DEI meetings saying we need to fight white supremacy and all these things. And like, how do you think you actually create it? I mean, it's like the dinner table thing we said earlier. Like if, if you're not willing to have a conversation with people on a deeper level and get to understand where their perspective is coming from, you know, the idea of studying race and racism and social constructs and identity, those are humanities based topics, right? Like mm -hmm. if we're not interested in going to that level, then you're going to end up leaving it to the the high priests or whatever. And I honestly think that's what a lot of schools on the administrative level want to do, right? Like hire someone who's an expert and mm -hmm. say, whatever they do is fine. Just leave me out of it. I'm not risking my neck by doing or saying the wrong thing. And, you know, to this day, I have a lot of former students reach out to me uh, in all schools, but particularly from Philadelphia who are now adults. It just happened today, actually. It's funny. A kid I used to teach from Philadelphia, who's now in the military, posted a quote from Thomas mm -hmm. Sowell on Facebook. And I said, you know, I'm so proud of all the success you've had. And he said, you know, you've had so much to do with with that. Um, but, you know, I, taking the time to understand people gives them that opportunity to say, this is how I'm feeling rather than just reacting. Right. And then, yeah. you know, going and saying, this person offended me, this, this guy offended me. And you and I talked about that in the past. You, you said, you know, you knew I was coming from a different perspective on that because I've taken a lot more risks in terms of trying to build community because I, I don't worry, you know, that I'm going to generally, I've never worried that I'm going to offend kids because the kids know my goal is to come in here and help you feel empowered and, and mm -hmm. feel like, you know, you can be the best person no matter who you are. Um, and I, I do want to add with that, uh, the kid, you know, kids who are adults reaching out to me when that stuff peaked with the news and everything and, and the sort of fear that over, you know, I, what I thought was a really pushing of fear that, you know, we had riots and we had peaceful protests. We also had riots, you know, kids were reaching out to me, kids who are now grown over 18 mm -hmm. and they're reaching out to me through Facebook or Instagram and saying, uh, you know, I am afraid around every corner, there's like a white supremacist trying to get me. Uh, and they reached out to say like, is that a valid way of feeling? <laughs> right? Wow. Like, and wow. How, how terrifying to have to feel that way because of what you saw in the news, right? Yeah. That, that you feel like people are out to get you, uh, police are out to get you. And, um, you know, I remember a, a, a kid telling me who, who was a brilliant kid who's, who's gone on to, to, to success and, and sort of def, defied the odds of, of his, his background. Um, you know, he said, I was raised to believe that every white person in America has it better than every black person in America. And mm -hmm. I just told him one story of a childhood friend of mine. And he said, Oh, that's horrible. Like I would never want to be in that person's shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, and I think it benefits him to, to, 
to sort of learn about other people's struggles rather than walk around fearing that in, around every corner lurks a Klansman. Yeah, I mean, it's it really is. Uh, you know, it's great that you're able to have those relationships um, and, you know, you have kids contacting you afterwards, you know, as adults. And that's, that's terrific. So I'm, I'm really, I'm sure they got a lot out of that relationship. And, um, you know, I, I stay in touch with some of my students, but not enough. I, you know, I, I, I wish I knew more about what, what they were up to. Um, but to be honest, I wasn't a very good teacher at the beginning. Um, <laughs> and, you know, everyone goes through that where they cut their teeth and they learn stuff and they have regrets and they stay up. They can't sleep at night because they know they made they did something dumb. Um, you know, I had to learn to be one of those teachers who does who doesn't just teach math. Uh, right. At the beginning, that was, you know, that was when I remember to teach the math, you know. Right. Um, but I think where I had success is when I I wasn't overly curious, but I would be accessible. So if someone wanted to talk to me, I would just listen to them. Right. You know, when I was at my best, which wasn't always. Um, but I, you know, I would offer suggestions, but you know, the girl who cries because she's has a crush on a boy and the boy doesn't like her and she's right. She right. can't like, take the test and you got to go to the office and she's oh, going to yeah. spill her guts and you, know, you gotta, you're not going to just tell her, go take the test. I mean, right. You can't on the one hand push that and you can't, yeah, yeah. teachers are not, are, are rightfully mindful of boundaries, right? There's like a whole there's boundaries yes. that we have to be yeah. mindful of. So, and, and so when you said that about like sort of a collective of, of, chalkboard heretics like people who want to to sort of encourage places schools to be able to have a more productive conversation i think the challenge is that um we can you know you and i and other educators can sit around and say you know we're opposed to what this is doing to kids but to take it into schools and effectively make changes right you gotta you gotta rely on people who have a lot of charisma and sort of can convey that message in a way that's really palatable that's that's why i, I have such a, a an admiration for people like thomas chatterton williams or john john mcwarder because mm -hmm. they really are have been able to have those conversations in ways that are productive and and it, and i just unfortunately i don't think a lot of people on that side of the argument listen or are even aware that those people exist. I don't think, I think you're right. I mean, I, I remember telling a colleague who um, was really a mentor to me, um, a woman, a black woman who, you know, had a lot of the same complaints about those early charter schools that, that you did, that they were just, you know, doctrinaire testing mills. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that really, colored her thoughts on charters in general. I think, you know, maybe charters are somewhat improved today. I, I, I hope so. Um, but, you know, where she, she didn't, she hadn't heard of like Thomas Sowell, like just, they just right. ne never encountered this other entire field of um, thought and, and thinkers, you know? So it really, there's an opportunity there because, and I I would love to find a way to bring them into the conversation with the kids. That yeah. to me was, was because I was doing all this research on my own and my colleagues hadn't heard about it. And I didn't want the kids to grow up or develop without that, you know, make up your own mind, but at least hear what they're saying. Uh, so also, maybe there's a way we can offer that independent of the institutions that we're in. I, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of right. It, it is vast 
hypocrisy on their part to say, you know, what we need to, to have is, you know, more inclusion. And then you ignore those voices. Ayan Hershey Ali, right, is another great one. Like, mm -hmm. and it says so much to say. And I don't know that her voice is, is being brought into those conversations in the way that it could be. There's so many people that fall into that category. Um, you know, and, and I've brought it up in, in meetings with administrators of schools to say, you know, how do you sit here and talk about your dedication to equity when the whole purpose of this school is to be exclusive to a certain, you know, type of kid, either based on wealth or, you know, high academic scores that that's exclusive, exclu mm -hmm. exclusivity. Maybe it's hard to admit that because you don't want to publicly say that and be open to criticism, but people are aware that that's what it is. Yeah. It doesn't really, it, I, I don't know that it, it may behoove the school, right? Because they're going to say, and they would say, well, what are we going to do? Say, you know, say that we're exclusive. Well, okay, fine. You don't want to be marketing that you're exclusive, even though people know that it is. But at the same time, when you push the other, it may not hurt the school, but it, it is causing a, a bigger problem that then, you know, you're not taking any accountability for, uh, in the, in the mm -hmm. grand scheme of things. And, and, Maybe that's part of, maybe that's part of, I don't want to say that's part of the point, but, um, you know, I just heard, uh, who was it? Uh, it was, it was Fred DeBoer talk about, um, when Ivy league schools were trying to keep Jews out, they changed from hard admissions to soft admissions where it's like, you know, you look at the whole student instead of just the scores because Jew, the children of Jewish immigrants were getting high scores and they were getting into places like Stuyvesant and then they were applying to, to private schools and, you know, we just there was a lawsuit recently against what was it Harvard, a uh, mm -hmm. group of Asian Americans. Um, yeah. So they found new ways to keep them out. And so I, I sometimes I, I I end up wondering if some of these schools. I'm certainly not going to criticize all of them. I've had wonderful experiences in, in schools I've worked in, and I'm currently having an amazing experience where I am. But um, you know, are are this is part of a way to keep things exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. With sort of. As long as we project this, as long as we and we take the loudest voice possible, we take the strongest voices possible, we take the Kendys, we take the, the D'Angelo's and we say, this is what we represent, period. Then no matter what we do on the back end, we'll just say, you know, but that's not we don't we don't what you're criticizing us it's, for is not us. Look at us. Look at us. We have white fragility. It's woke, woke washing. Right. I guess you could yeah, say it's woke. Washing. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I, I have my I have my own theory about that. Um, and the way that its class is essentially masked by anti-racism, right? Classism right. and and the real exclusion is going on underneath the hand, which has the the sign that says "We're inclusive, we're inclusive, we're inclusive." Right. Um, and you know, and that's a very convenient thing for people who have had you know tremendous class privilege, which run so many they I mean the history of this is generations and if you if they can conflate that with whiteness or race and then tell everyone that no actually it's not that i am like the 0.0001% it's that we are all white right, right. they're distribute they're in a way they're sort of distributing their privilege broadly so that they can gain a kind of intimacy with every with a broader swath of you know, the public at the same time hiding what actually keeps them exclusive. Right. So my, my, you know, my ex, my other, head of school at Grace, where I worked at, definitely did that behooved him. I don't think it was conscious, 
but I think that was definitely part of it. And I think it's part of it for a lot of these schools that, that, that I've taught at, you know, I'm really happy you're at a school that you really appreciate and it's good. Um, but, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the usual suspects of NIS schools, right? Not all the NIS schools, but, you know, I would say. Um, yeah. And I very much, I believe in, in the opportunity that those schools can provide, especially to, to kids who may not then yes, maybe that's absolutely. the opportunity for kids who work hard, right? Yeah. Um, and if you ask any kids, even when I taught little kids about like, you know, what they think of outcomes, like should we be rewarded for outcomes? Even small children say yes. Like, like the idea of this equity mm -hmm. of outcomes thing, which has become, you know, a topic in those same schools, right? We need equity of outcomes. Kendi's sort of whole philosophy is around any inequity of an outcome right, is an indicator of race. Well, that's a pretty slippery slope, right? Like, yeah, there's so many areas in society we can find out inequity of outcomes or disparate outcomes where it's not just, you know, uh, a certain color, skin color is, is, is not is succeeding less than another. There's all kinds of them. If you want to go down that road, then we constantly have to be pointing the finger and say, you know, this is this is discrimination. This is hate. And I don't think that's that's what we want to do. Have you ever done the thing where you say, well, you believe in equity. Okay, well, the entire, everything that we do in this class is going to be a group project. Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to get, yeah, you know, <laughs> average all the grades and then watch them, the yeah, watch them lose it. Yeah, that, yeah. that kind of, that teaches something. I asked um, them to do some, uh, homework. They came back. I could tell they didn't put the effort they wanted in. And then I said, okay, let's take a quiz on the, on the, on the assignment. And you know, 33% of them passed the quiz. I said, all right, well, how about everybody gets a 33%? No, 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 no. <laughs> how about those who, who got a hundred percent get a hundred and those who got a zero get it? No, no, no. Like, right. This but, is they, the, yeah. but the kids That's who got the hundred were like, that sounds good. All these, all these people should sure. fail. Right. Um, and I've had, and I, you know, I've had um, people come into my class who, you know, who had parents or grandparents who grew up in communist countries and shared that or, you know, mm -hmm. when, when you, when you get, it's, it's, it's pretty funny. Like when, you know, when you teach history and you get people from other places, whether it's, you know, people who went through the Holocaust or people who went through uh, communist China or Vietnam or Russia, all these things that, or went through pogroms and they come into the class and they're sort of, they almost always, you know, especially older people almost exclusively sing the, the praises of American system. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are in the same schools. And there was that Atlantic article, I think you remember a year and a half ago. So about like, you know, to, to see private institutions in New York saying capitalism is evil, you know, yeah. like you're charging 55,000 a kid and teaching kids that capitalism is evil. Um, who doesn't see through that? Like, I, I, it's so yeah. it's weird. Yeah, it's it, it's I, I think it's some sort of more like it's a moral. Um, some kind of moral compensation mechanism, you right? Know, because the, I think, I don't want to generalize, but you, but a lot of the parents, particularly the men, are in the financial industry. You know, they're out there grinding and like God knows, but they don't want their they don't want their kids they want their kids to to have a good you know to be good people, right? And the school's going to tell us how to do that, and you know we can be amoral. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know how, how to put it. I don't actually think that it's amoral, but maybe people have a little bit of a guilt complex around what they do. Yeah. And then they, and then, you know, they, they want their kids to be, 
um, something better. Well, uh, we live in a world of like advocacy, right? Like everyone's always advocate advocating for others, and particularly you're going to advocate for your children, and you're going to advocate mm -hmm, for them yeah. strongly. A lot of times when you're paying that kind of money to go to a school, I mean, my kids right now go to public school, and I advocate for that. I advocate for them, um, but I also want them to go through struggles. I want them to, to, mm -hmm. to know these sort of challenges. And I, and I, and I don't want them to, to go around feeling like America is an awful place and it's racist and everyone's against you for whatever reason, right? Because you're Jewish, because you're Middle Eastern, whatever it is, um, because you're a girl, I, I don't want my kids to feel that way. And, and I see, and I, and I think if for listeners who are not sure, you know, what the overarching, you know, message is, it's that, you know, I don't think we benefit kids in the long run. I think I keep saying it um, by pushing those sort of things. And um, I feel like a lot of times they end up feeling less empowered. And, and you know, uh, we want to create a stronger society for everyone. And, and I don't think that's that's the way you do it. I agree. Yeah. Well, Larry, thanks so much for for talking with with me. And uh, I would love to do this again sometime. I think we barely yeah. scratched the surface. Yeah. There's so much more, you know, you've got stories. I've got stories we haven't, we haven't gotten to, um, but this has been wonderful. Thanks. You know, thanks so much for taking the time and, um, okay. So Larry reached out after this, he wanted to record some more of his thoughts about the question that I asked, uh, earlier in this episode, 15 minutes in the one about, you know, why, um, why did the white people, Axel Clueless. So um, there is a supplement to this. I'm happy to share with everyone. Uh, check it out now. So why do you think that these white people uh, were feigning ignorance about their knowledge of, of racism? If, if, you know, if that's what was going on, like you said. Right. And, and I think that it's our tendency. Uh, human beings have this tendency to follow trends, right? Uh, especially at the time. And that that you're living in what the trend is is what you're going with and and currently it's pretty easy to to speak out loud and say you stand up you you're, you stand against oppression right because there's a benefit to it particularly in these schools you're going to get a certain amount of, of attention um positive attention from administrators who are hoping to promote you know anti-racism training and things like this so there's a benefit to saying that uh, I wasn't previously aware of this, uh, and and now I am. And if if you if you said I was previously aware, right, which is has to be some truth for many of these people. I mean, I mean, you're talking about educators who are you know uh, Caucasian educators who are in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, all the way up, right? And you've mm -hmm. lived in America, you know, your whole life, and and you you're claiming I didn't know, I didn't know. If 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 you claim that you did know right which you should know because you went to school and yeah. you certainly and, and especially in new york you live in one of the most diverse if not it is i mean bronx and and or queens and brooklyn are the most diverse places in america um and you didn't do anything by your own admission now you're admitting that you're aware of it and you didn't do anything and not only right, that, you didn't right. say anything you didn't participate in, in multicultural events or anything and so now you're in a place where um you feel obligated to sort of loudly proclaim how much you stand for social justice and you're in a position to say, well, uh, and I didn't know, I, I didn't know up mm -hmm. until now. And so I can't really be held accountable for that. So when you ask me, 
why a day that was sort of dedicated to the to the instruction or whatever you want to call it because it is of robin d'angelo along the white fragility lines and and along with ibram kendi why it didn't have the effect on people particularly people of color that that the school or the institution had hoped um i think that it's easy to see when you're in those those experiences with people and they're loudly proclaiming what i just said when i talked about sort of the, that they are very uh, anti-racism and they're, they're anti-oppression and they want to stand up for marginalized people, it starts to very quickly become clear that it feels dis disingenuine and that it feels forced. And then you find yourself wondering, like, well, what's the what's the real angle here, right? Is like, what, what do these people really care about? Is it themselves? And I, I'll never forget that after a meeting that we're... <laughs> We had to sit around as a, as a whole faculty and they, they, they made everyone say, um, you know, what your, your gender pronouns are, uh, what your, what your race is. Now, from my perspective, these are things that may be private to people, right? Like, especially for, for, for people that have diverse backgrounds and their own multicultural backgrounds, like I do. And then, um, you know, they were sort of, they were pushing people who identified as white to identify that they are also racist inherently because of their whiteness. And then a friend of mine, an educator who's also of color said, said to me uh, in, in private afterwards, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel okay now that the school has put me in a situation where I know I am working with a bunch of racists who outwardly <laughs> proclaimed we are racist. We are white yeah. and we are racist. Oh, you, call, you employ racist people? And a, a girl said they were saying to people, tell tell what you learned from white fragility and she stood up and she said i learned that i only have this job i was only hired here and this is recent this wasn't someone who had been here for years. i learned she said that i was only hired here because of racism and this is a room full of administrators and no one said no whatever you right and right this, that's not why you're 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 a highly qualified educator they sat there and listened to this person proclaim that because of racism she got hired and i'm thinking if I'm a parent in this room, I'm, I'm going, wait a second. Uh, you hired this person because for the color of their skin? Well, you better do something about this now. You, you're not stopping this person from saying that she doesn't feel qualified to teach in the place that she's working, right? And so, you know, when you hear these loud proclamations that don't really make anyone feel better, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead to any sort of productive unity in my experience and so i'll tell imagine, you imagine yeah imagine that like you're going to work in an institution where people are admit are admitted racist at my own school the head of school told the school that that racism was had permeated the school at all levels yeah and that you know we were you know as a predominantly white institution we were a you know we were inundated with racism yeah. And, you know, my my feeling is like, my God, why would I why am I still here? Like, why, yeah. why am I you know, why would I want to work for a bunch of racists or with yeah, I don't want I don't I don't want to be a part of your extremely racist. It is one thing to acknowledge that racism is real and that racism played a role in, in the history of this country and that white supremacy exists and, and all these things. It's mm -hmm. another thing to say we are a racist institution. Wait, hold on a second. Like, yeah. why? Why is this OK? And so. Um, I remember, uh, some of the very specific moments that were striking when you're in the, the sort of white ally, you know, you're around the, the, the people that are proclaiming 
their virtue. I, a, a woman said, it is racist to smile at people of color. And there was no pushback. So I raised my hand, why, why is, you know, no one asks questions. Why is this racism? Why, why? Well, because if you are, you are smiling as a white person from her perspective, and she said she, she wouldn't smile at people of color for this reason, because she would be forcing them in her whiteness to smile back. And then here, here, here goes with the, you know, the loud proclamations that people of color have no agency. They have no agency. They have no, but that's, that, that's what's being stated here, right? They can't make their own decisions from her perspective. She's making the decision for them by smiling. So she wanted to avoid that, right? I heard teachers say uh, in response to um, the, 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 the protest and riots after the George Floyd situation um, that, well, you know, and this was, there was a book about this too. People sort well, well, black Americans, they said, don't have any ability to make their voice heard other than other than rioting and and things like that. And yes, uh, rioting again, is the language of the unheard. That right? famous Martin Luther if King the, quote, which is, you know, doesn't mean a tacit approval of rioting. If it you're doesn't. Like, it doesn't. If you're going to look at right? it in context, he's not saying, you know, oh, it's OK that people are rioting. Right. Anyway, yeah. No, no, certainly. I mean. Uh, and, and in fact, even bringing that up reminds me of, you know, that people people miss the whole whole sort of criticism of the way that Dr. King and, and John Lewis went about civil rights movement. There is a inherent and open criticism in the CRT and critical race theory of of the civil rights movement of the 60s, mm -hmm. saying that it wasn't they felt it wasn't the right method. Um, and so I, I heard that I heard teachers, I, you know, saying that we need to get rid of testing standards. Right. Because mm -hmm. children of color, you know, they felt like couldn't pass them. So we'll get rid of them. Right. Again, taking away agency. There was a child I taught who I became very close with the family. He had a number of very, very standard struggles for any boy his age. And I went to people in the school and I said, has anyone addressed this? Right. Uh, he was African-American. And I, has anyone addressed this in the past? And I had teachers tell me, white teachers, well, I didn't say anything. So teachers told me that the reason that they didn't help this child is because they were afraid that if they helped him with his struggles, they would be accused of being racists for saying that he had challenges. And they were so committed mm -hmm. to people seeing them as anti-racist that they avoided helping a child who needed help, right? Mm -hmm. And when he got help from me, his parents were so appreciative. And I thought to myself, what would they think if they knew that they had been spending money for years on a school where people avoided helping their child because they were so uh, they, they were so driven to convince his mother and father that they were on his side, that they didn't help him and not helping someone, not, not, not helping someone along is not, that's not, anti, that's, that's not, you're not being a human rights advocate, right? No. Yeah. You, that's, that's just bad, bad it's teaching, bad. bad mentoring. It's funny because the NIS, um, I'm going to call out the National Association of Independent Schools here, um, is explicit in their handbooks to the administration and the faculty that black parents, specifically black parents will never trust your school fully and that they need to be treated differently because of their racial, uh, racialized identities. So, you know, this is not just, this is not just bubbling up from, yeah. you know, the, the, the ether and the, and the, and the ed schools and all the rest of it. It's actually part of the institutional professional association guidelines now. And this teacher repeated that verbatim. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that that was the case until you just told me. So it's really 
fascinating to hear that because I know that's how often, you know, people in, in, in schools just sort of repeat whatever mm -hmm. the, the tagline is. So not that knowing that actually makes a lot of sense because that was her perspective. And she said to me, she was sure that every parent of color sends their kids to the school constantly afraid that all the teachers are racists. And, and again, lack of it, you're taking agency away from people. These are, you know, successful, driven, right? Um, professional people who mm -hmm. chose to send their, they have options, they have agency, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They, they didn't go into it going, oh, I'm sure. Of course, there is a concern from them that, they're that their child is going to be discriminated, but you then validated the concern by not helping that child out of your own fear, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, it goes along with the, I, one of my favorite stories is one of those meetings, the woman said that um, we don't have the ability to trust the intentions of each other Right. This was one of those, you know, the white ally things. Uh, we don't have the ability to trust each other. Uh, so we can't trust good intentions. And the mm -hmm. only person raised my hand said, why? Why, ma'am, can we not trust good intentions? Well, she said, well, 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 uh, people of color don't have the ability to trust the good intentions of people who are different from them. And I said, I'm not sure that you can make a blanket statement about all people, right, all non-white people, that they don't have the ability to make that decision for themselves. Again, right, you're, you're taking someone's agency away. It is a choice someone makes whether to give someone trust or not. And also, I don't know why that would be applied to this room anyway, even if you do believe that. But why would you say that blanket statement, all people of color cannot do not have the ability to trust anyone different from themselves? It's and she told me. You are a white. First of all, she misracially identified me. <laughs> yeah. You are a white man, and you need to sit down and stop. I wasn't even standing and stop talking because you're taking up too much space. And you were already sitting. She I wanted you to sitting. sit down. <laughs> yeah. That's priceless. And you're not. You're not a white man. So that's that's very funny. Um, it's 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 strange. It almost has the well. It does have the effect of preserving the lack of intimacy. That's that is always available to individuals that can relate to each other directly. If you if you insist over and over that this type of intimacy is such a far horizon because no one can trust each other because of institutional racism or white supremacy, what have you, well, it, it winds up freezing in amber the social relations which you, you know, correctly or incorrectly are identifying as present. So it, 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 it almost, you know, it, it seems to be just a feedback loop to me. It, I, um, I agree. I mean, we all, right? Don't we all have to, to some degree, human beings, historically and now, particularly human beings who, who, who grow up in environments that have a lot of poverty, high, high crime, mm -hmm. high, that's all these things. You, you, you go through life having to learn to trust people that are outside of your family. And if you grow up in a family that's highly dysfunctional, which many people do, right? Then you really have that challenge. And you now these people want to add to that challenge, right? And if you're a kid who's going to an elite school, I'm sure that you have that fear already. And then you come to the school and have to have it told to you by professionals, adults, oh yeah, I, I you definitely have to be afraid of this, right? And like you said, mm -hmm. here comes the feedback loop, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and so, I, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it, it's funny. The grain of the germ of truth is that, yes, there, you know, I had my own process of development. It went to college. You know, I, I, I went to a public school, high school. So, uh, you know, there were 
all different types of kids and cultures there because it was a it was a college town public school. But then, you know, you do have to realize that this claims to universalism are flawed and that, you know, we are all human beings, but there are just differences. And so, you know, people started from different cultures, black people, Latino people, like they started interacting and calling me as a white person. So I became conscious of my whiteness. Right. And and that, you know, and that carries with it to learn about the assumptions other people are making about you because of various different things is important. But to presume that those those differences are insurmountable or that understanding is, uh, you know, corrupted from the beginning. And unless you we we hand over our agency to these experts who are going to make us check boxes on exactly how to interact, that somehow we can't transcend those things that that to me is is you know, a perversion of human understanding. Yeah, I mean, it ends up, hence the term, I imagine, chalkboard heresy, chalkboard heresy. I mean, it ends up feeling, you know, religious. And to me, it ended up feeling nefarious. Like, it really did feel mm -hmm. like, you know, the, the outcome here, since it's not, and it's not even stated, right? We're educators. We learn all the time. What's the objective? How do we drive towards the objective? With this, don't dare ask what the objective is, mm -hmm. right? I, I know a board member in my where I live here, wonderful woman uh, who also, you know, happens also not to not to be a white woman, you know, and she, she's 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 also an immigrant. And she she pointed out that she was concerned about the school, the school district's objectives. They weren't stated with their the DEI work they were doing. And, and she got a lot of really negative pushback uh, mm -hmm. on just asking that question. And the last story mm -hmm. before I go, we can ins mm -hmm. you know put this into in or not is is, is um, it's not funny. It's, it's sad. But I remember um, a woman who was at my school and uh, a, a, a white woman who who was um, always very vocal in these conversations. And I was on the elevator uh, with her and another friend who worked at the school who happens to be an African-American woman who's a, who's a close friend. And she said, she looked at my Instagram and she saw, she went back in time and saw my earlier teaching days in, in West Philadelphia. And she said, I know, I said, she said, I, I saw you with those kids. And she said, I know it must've been hard because some of those kids are probably pretty bad. And, and, uh, yeah, I said, well, you know, I had a lot of different challenges there than I do here for sure. And then she got off the elevator and, and we continued that conversation at another time. But, but the white woman then looked at me after she was gone and said, oh my God, she's a self-hating black. And, and I, and I, I very quickly, you know, responded in a way that ended mm -hmm. up leading to tears on her part because I said, Hey, I, I, I gotta tell you. I know from knowing you in, in meetings that we've had that you haven't had the experience of teaching in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment like I have, but more so for my friend that was on the elevator just now and myself, we both have experienced growing up in environments where crime and poverty and violence are commonplace. And so we understand the language we're speaking to each other when we talk about kids having those particular problems. And she was sort of empathizing with where she comes from, where I come from, how that's real. And I understand that you may not be familiar with that, but to to accuse her of not loving herself or her her ethnicity or culture because she made a comment about the challenge of working with kids who have behavior issues. When, by the way, I said to her and I and I said and I won't I won't tell you the details of what exactly I told her, but I told her about some of the truly heinous crimes some of my students committed both while I was teaching them and afterwards and pointed out that I still gave them the respect and, and love that they deserved as human beings because I know they'd went through that. For her to judge that woman that way was completely inappropriate and unacceptable. So on one hand, mm -hmm. right, I was glad that she said it because it gave that opportunity. On the other hand, it was a perfect example of how, you know, 
there's this agency awarded to you know uh, people who embrace the the white fragility or Kendi perspective that now they have the ability to to determine how and you know people of color should think should be and how they should be responding to their own environment and it, it, it's it's frankly pretty perverse as you mentioned it's so dehumanizing the group the yeah. group identity model and then it, it, how do you when you deviate from the as uh if i say as a right. white person or as a cis male hetero right like i'm i am saying i am scripting my own opinion according to the presumed opinion of some group and then i to actually justify any subsequent opinion i must have an identity marker that justifies that opinion right it's, so it's i have so, to come in under yeah it's so reductive and, to other people and like we talked about when we talked about the conference i went to you know it really takes the perspective that like when you say that i don't know how people listening can't think well you're saying that only you can understand this feeling i mean i've experienced that so many times where someone will mm -hmm. say as a blank i mm -hmm. know and then my response is how do you know if I've gone through the same thing? We didn't, I haven't even, and, I, and maybe that's another chat, but talk mm. about that when I've been abused by police, my mother has been assaulted by police. I, you know, I, to assume that people who don't have your exact same heritage or ethnic background don't know certain struggles, or to assume that everyone does who's different than you, or as, you know, like you said, as first thing, as a white person, I, I will never know X. How could you assume that? Yeah, it's a kind of a new provincialism. I think of it, it as is. like it's it's cosmopolitanism is now imploded, and now we just have these lo these little identity pr pr provinces. Yeah, um, it's so strange. I'm I'm glad you like talking to me. I I hear myself. I th think I sound pretty boring, but uh, I'm honored. Not and, at all. Not at all. And, and I mean it when I say you know, especially to your point about. Um, educators and who think this way you know I, I do have a strong network of people many who feel like you and i do and are afraid to say it in schools and uh it's a you know, it's a very diverse group of educators and and educators and I, i'd love for you to together with all of us and and and, and, and chat it up yeah that's great yeah. um anyone who wants to come on be happy to would love to have them on so awesome you know, a lot of it is just, you know, what their risk tolerance is and what the school, what's right for their, them. And that's fine too. So we can, we can find ways to, to host. Sure. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Yeah.